Awesome. Well, good morning, everyone. Man, what a, what a precious family. So thankful for this church family. And this morning, I'm going to jump right into it, and we're going to get going here. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to go a little further into this, but you know, last week, the Lord just really helped me. We're going to just take some time. I mean, because the Lord's not coming back tomorrow. We're going to just take some time about getting ourselves established in this grace. I don't want to move too quickly, too fast off of it, because for you and I, this is the gospel. The gospel is not just for the lost. It is. But the gospel is even for you and I living in this day and age. And so you and I have to be understanding and how to operate in God's method of operation in the day and the times that we live in. You know, did you know that you can live in victory in 2023? Did you know that's not just a nice Christian thing that you throw out there and say, victory in 23? It's, it's true and it's good, but it's actually reality. Now, for you and I, we have to understand the time period or the, the, the season that heaven's calendar is in. For us, we're in March. So I'm not going to go to the beach after the service today. Right? I may put on my new black t-shirt though, but that's probably the extent of the summer attire I'm going to be wearing. Why? Because it's going to be cold. But heaven has a season. Heaven is operating right now in this called grace. That's how heavens, that's how God is operating and has to deal with you. Listen, he has to deal with you through grace because of what Jesus has done. So when we understand the method of operation or how God is looking and dealing with us today, then we can learn to understand how to partake of what heaven has already offered and actually start to see, like what Pastor John mentioned already earlier, to see the results or the fruit from our, from our lives. When you read that, sometimes I would read fruit and start thinking, okay, I got to produce stuff. I got to look. I got I to gotta do. I got to do. I got to do. No, you and I have to learn how to believe in what Jesus has already done so that the fruit can come off. Now... Hebrews chapter 1 again, verse that we read. But you see, throughout our history, God has spoken to our ancestors by his prophets. So how did God operate in the Old Testament? Through who did he speak through? Through the prophets. And in many different ways, right? You see how the prophets operated. Some had visions. Some got, you know, sights into heaven. Sometimes a word of the Lord came to them. In many different ways, God spoke through these prophets to the people, Right? So the revelation he gave them was only a fragment or it was simply a puzzle piece at a time. God was giving them a picture upon a picture upon a picture. And then in verse 2, but in these last days. How I many know we're living in these last days? So absolutely, read the Old Testament. You can learn some really good truths. You can see a lot of powerful things. But for us living in these last days, God now speaks to you and I openly in the language of a son. Meaning God speaks Jesus. So if he's going to communicate with you, guess what? You don't need to have to go through some minister in order to hear from God. God is willing and wants to talk to us on our individual basis. Isn't that good news? Oh man, I'm so thankful for that. Now he is the heir of everything and through him, God created the panorama of all things. So now in, in Mark chapter 9 verse 7, we see now God is preparing the world for a new era that was to come. We see this, and again, if, you know, I would encourage you to read Mark chapter 9 so you get it in context. But the disciples went up with Jesus to what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus was completely changed, right? There was Moses appeared unto him, who represents the prophets. Elijah represents the prophets, or sorry, the law. Moses was the law. Elijah was the prophets. And right afterwards, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice, this was the Lord, this was God speaking from that cloud. He said, this is my dearly loved son. What's the key to this new era? 
Listen to him. So how do you and I live our days in 2023? Listen to him. With all the voices that are going on out there, how can I live victoriously? By paying attention to the conservatives. By focusing on the NDP's plan. No. No. (laughs) What do I do? I listen to him. That's how I live victoriously. It's not dependent upon what is externally taking place. Now, why do I need to focus my life on Jesus? Because the Christian life is not hard to do. It's impossible to do. Say with me, it's impossible. Jesus is the only one who could properly live it out. So my focus then as a Christian is to renew my thinking to the finished works of Jesus and rest in him and all that he did and refuse to go back to the dead works of religion to try to earn my standing with him. What's my job as a New Testament believer? Change the way that I think so I see and I understand what the finished works of Jesus was and stop going back to the dead works of religion where I'm trying to do things. I have to pray longer. Why are you praying? So I got to get right with God. I got to get on God's good side. It's dead work. That won't work. You can pray from now till next week, Sunday, and it'll still be called a dead work. And God will not be pleased with it. Why? Because it's out of a motivation of trying to earn something that you could never get. Instead, what is he pleased with? When you change the way you think to line up with what Jesus finished and accomplished for us and say, I'm not righteous based on what I did. I'm simply righteous based on what Jesus did. This is the whole New Testament in a nutshell. It's about him. It's not about you because religion makes it about you. The problem with religion is you are in it. So Christianity, again, it's not just hard to do, it's impossible. But when you start to believe in what Jesus has done for you, it now puts you in a place where you start bearing this fruit. In Romans 5.19, this to me is like a a major New Testament scripture that we have to understand. We got to live by, like, get it on the inside of you, because this is the separation. It says, one man's disobedience, and who's that one man? Adam. Opened the door for all... Say with me, all humanity to become sinners. So whether you liked it or not, you were born as a sinner. That's what you were coming into this earth. So he says, so also one man's obedience. And who's this one man? Jesus. You know, the other day my son came up to me, my, uh, Jace came up to me, uh, and he said, you know what, Papa, the Bible's only about two men. I went, dude, that's, how did you, for my nine-year-old to say that to me, I went, you got it. You got it. That's what it's about. Right? Stop making this whole thing about you. And I got to do it. It's about who are you connected to? Adam or Jesus? That's the question that you have to answer for yourself. So if my nine-year-old son can get it, surely I can get it. So he says, so also one man's obedience. And we know this to be Jesus. Jesus, what did he do? He opened the door for many to be made perfectly right with God and acceptable to him. Here's the message Bible. It kind of paraphrases it like this. It says, here it is in a nutshell. One person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death. Another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. Whoo. Did you hear that? I'm going to read that one more time. I felt that one. He says, but more than just getting us out of trouble. Thank God when I got bailed out of the principal's office. 
But where did I go back? I went back into the classroom. Ah. More than just getting me out of trouble, he put you and I into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and many or put many in the right. So this is what this is all about is who am I going to focus on? It is easy to identify with the old man because you were born into this. When you were born, you were born into Adam's disobedience. And so operating and acting like a sinner just was you were because that's what you came out as. But now you and I, the trick is, or the, the realization is, I have to no longer identify with that man. I'm not focusing on the yes of Jesus, not the no of Adam. Now, when my life becomes focused on Jesus, specifically in his right and his saying yes to God, I begin to see the value of Jesus and my love for him deepens. Because I've had some questions go like, how, how do you love the Lord more? How, how, how do you do this? Do I just say it a bunch of times and I love Jesus and I love Jesus and I love Jesus and then it just takes place? No, it's actually seeing, focusing my life, seeing what he has established and conquered for me, it deepens my love. I want to show us this in John chapter 12 here, verses 1 through 5. You're going to see here, there's two hearts that are exposed in this. But did you know, before I read this, I want to just say that the greatest call in my life is not just to be a dad, a husband, a pastor. The greatest call in my life is to be a worshiper. And I'm not just talking singing songs. That's, that's part of it. But my worship, everything I do is I want God to be pleased with who I am. I want God to be pleased with everything that I do. Romans 12, 2 talks about changing the way that I think. This is true worship to God, renewing my mind to think like him. This is the greatest thing that we could give to God is my worship. It's all about Jesus and his finished work. He has paid the ultimate price for us to reign in life. And the more that I grasp, as I said, the finished works of Jesus, I'll be able to worship and glorify him. Now in John chapter 12, says this, six days before the Passover began, Jesus went back to Bethany, the town where he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. They had prepared. Now, I really want you to get a picture of this. They prepared a supper for Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus and Mary were now sitting at the table with Jesus. Can you see them all sitting? Here they are all sitting at the table, dining. Here's Jesus, probably saying a few jokes and different things. He's just enjoying his time. Now, Mary picked up an alabaster. I, I, can you, I want you just to put yourself in Mary's shoes here for a minute. Mary got up from the table. She walked up to this place where she kept her alabaster oil. She grabbed it. Now, before she, if we could just kind of re, rewind all the way back, just see her looking at Jesus. How do you think she's just looking at him? Like just this, oh man, I love you. Just this tender affection. So she gets up from the table because words aren't enough to express what's going on in her. She grabs this alabaster oil that she put way up high so nobody else could get it, specifically Lazarus or Martha. Grabs it. <laughs> she brings it down over to where Jesus is sitting. And we see there's no record of her saying a word. So I'll just read it, the purest extract of nard. And she went down, can just see it broke open this alabaster, this jar, and she now anointed Jesus' feet. Then she went down and she wiped them with her hair. Feet. Well, people can't even touch feet. Here she is. She's pouring this most expensive perfume, pouring it all over his feet. 
Then she's taking her hair and she's wiping and drying it with her hair. How do you get to that? With her long hair and the fragrance now, the smell of what she did. Everybody could smell what she did. Verse 4. But Judas, the locksmith, Simon's son, the betrayer, spoke up and he said, What a waste. How do you get there? We could have sold this perfume for a fortune and given the money to the poor. Mary's focus was not simply on the long toiling hours that she worked to purchase this. If you look again, the, it, the history would show us that it was a year's worth salary to purchase this perfume. She wasn't focused on the hours of labor and work that it took for her to purchase this nard. <laughs> what was her focus on? It was on Jesus. Mary came prepared to worship Jesus as her heart overflowed with a love that could not be expressed in words as she drew near to him. Adoration and gratitude welled up on the inside of her as she knelt quietly beside him. As we said, she uh, put the ointment all over her feet, his feet and then she wiped him with her hair. The house of the fragrance of her worship was smelled by everyone in that room. Judas, on the other hand, the treasurer said, what a waste. The sad reality is, as at a glance, Judas could look at that, at that, the, the jar. He could tell right away how much it would have cost. <laughs> he could look at it and said, oh yeah, that's probably about a year's worth. What a waste. Shortly after scolding Mary for wasting that costly oil, Judas went to the chief priests in Jerusalem and asked for a price to deliver Jesus to them. They offered him 30 pieces of silver, and he instantly agreed. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This revealed how much Judas valued Jesus. Mary, on their other end, knew that the value of Jesus had, and esteemed him greatly. Anointing Jesus was her most valuable possession, was simply an outward expression of just how much she loved, how much she valued and cherished Jesus inwardly. What Judas saw as waste, Mary saw as worship. And I don't know about you, but I want to deepen my love and my appreciation for the Lord. How do I do that? For you and I, this is where our part comes in. We have to take the time to see his yes. You have to take the time through the scriptures and find out what Jesus' yes means for me, what it means for you, what it means for your body, what it means for your mind, what it means for your bank account, what it means for the joy, what it means for the peace that you can have. You look at the whole thing. Jesus took care of it all. So you and I have to get into the scripture and start finding out, what did your yes do to me? Because it changed everything. Jesus changed everything. And I don't, but I believe that we're called to be a church that loves our king. Listen, the New Testament is not about how much you love Jesus. It's how, about how much he loves you. But my response is, God first loved me, so now I love God. It goes back. When you experience his love, you can't help but just fall in love with Jesus all over again. 
And that's what grace is all about. Grace unveils the person of Jesus. It unleashes and reveals to you and I who he is, what he's accomplished, and how it impacts every day of your life. Now, have you ever heard reading your Bible or taking time to pray is a waste of time? I've heard that. Have you ever heard before, serving in the local church is a waste of time? Am I the only one that's ever heard that? That's, that's good. I've heard that. How many of us heard this? Bringing a tithe, bringing my offerings to the Lord through the church is a waste of money and it's a waste of resources. I bet you everybody should have their hands raised up. We've all heard that. Why? These voices will always be here in this world because these voices don't understand the value of Jesus. When you see him and what his grace has accomplished, you go, here's my life. (laughs) So, the question that we are taking time to answer is, what did Jesus do? What did he do? And I want to just share one thing with us this morning. It's this, he disarmed the devil. Can you say that with me? He disarmed the devil. Right? There's many things that Jesus did. But we're going to just highlight this one this morning. He disarmed the devil. Say it with me one more time. He disarmed the devil. Now tell the devil, he disarmed you. Well, I feel good. Now, when you think of that word disarmed, I always think of like, you know, those, those safety classes where you're walked in and the guy, whatever, he's got a weapon, a gun specifically, you know, jammed at your face. What do you do? And these guys show you self-defense movement to disarm, you know, the guy that's going against you. Well, Jesus didn't just disarm, he paralyzed him. But now I want you to see what did he disarm him of? Colossians chapter two. So the question we're asking is what was the devil's weapon before he was disarmed by Jesus? Colossians 2 verse 14. Jesus, he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross, and then, verse 15, disarmed, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, if you don't mind, go back to verse 14 there for a moment. What was the tool or what was the enemy's weapon that he had against you and I? The handwriting of requirements that was against you. What is the handwriting of requirements? That was so powerful, listen, that it required the death of Jesus. It required death of God. On Mount Sinai, God gave ten commandments on stone. This is a reference to the law. The devil armed himself with the law to accuse and to condemn man. Now, we have to get this. God didn't give the law to arm the devil The devil, knowing that the law was against man, he took advantage of it and he started using it against man. The law always condemns man and puts people away from God. So what did the devil do? He used it to alienate people further away from God. Right? Can we see that? We're all on the same page here? Nod helps once in a while. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So once the law was nailed to the cross, God knew that the law no longer had the power to condemn man as long as they believed in Jesus. 
So this simply to say is the moment that if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that handwriting of requirements that was against you is completely gone. It's wiped away. <laughs> All right. When you know and believe that Jesus completely fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, the devil can no longer use the law to condemn you every time you fail. Because what's the problem in Christian life? I messed up, and so what do I do? I try to put enough good works again to match up my failure. It's like a balance. I messed up. So I got to do 10 good things to kind of balance it up or that my bad works kind of get out of the way again. Ludicrous. So this is what the enemy loves to do is he constantly uses the law to condemn, to alienate, to prove, ah, you're not good enough, so you can never do this. And the answer is, he's absolutely right. You can't do it. The Christian life is not easy. It's impossible. (laughs) So when Satan uses the law to point out your sins, you point to the cross of Jesus and you reject condemnation. Every time he brings something up, look what you did over here. You go, oh, Romans 5.19. One man's obedience brought me into this right standing with God. Has anybody you know that has lived out this Christian life perfectly? Other than your spouse? No? Okay. Now, now why is it so important that we grasp this? We're going to go some, hopefully more into detail on some of these things. But the law, when you choose to live under the law... Guess what? You have just rearmed the enemy again. It's like that guy, just again, that example of that guy that's coming against you. You just like, you had somebody come in and disarm him. And now you're choosing to give the gun back to the guy and say, oh yeah, go ahead. It's the same thing in the spirit. How stupid can that be? Jesus disarmed the guy, broke the guy's arm, made him paralyzed and he can't do nothing. And meanwhile, you pick up the gun and say, uh, here, you drop this. And you pass it back to the paralyzed guy, and now he's going to try to do whatever he can to get that thing back at you. Stupid. Jesus paid a tremendous price for you to constantly live under this condemnation. Don't give it back to the devil. Now, when you insist, as I said, being under the law, you are actually arming the devil again. God has nailed the law, blotted out the requirements, taken it out of the way, and disarmed the devil. Come on, he's disarmed. He's got nothing. What requirements do you have? What are you supposed to do? Believe in Jesus. Oh, I, have, I haven't prayed yet today. I haven't. That's all law mentality. And that's where God gets pleased when we start to change the way that we think. And now my motivation for prayer, my motivation for praise, my motivation for reading the word is out of this. Oh, Jesus, I'm in love with you. You become like a Mary who all of a sudden, I can't help it. I I just got to praise him. I got to rejoice. Why? Because of all the things he has done on my behalf. Oh, man. I tell you, this grace is so far reaching, unending, never giving up. Now, instead of resting in God's disarmament, people are rearming the powers of darkness. Now, the purpose of the law, I got a few minutes here, got three minutes left. But God gave the law for one purpose, that by the law, the world would have knowledge of sin and recognize their need of a savior, right? We know that was the law's intent. So without the law, there is no sin. Example, why do we have 110 on the highway when you drive down the highway too? It's law. Don't go over that. If you do, you're in trouble, right? There's a, there's a cop in the room, so I would just say, yes, that's right, that's, that's right, okay, he's taking names, he's checking things out, all right. 
Or is it just a, you know, a, a suggestion? 110 if you want to get to Edmonton really slow. <laughs> That's how I see it. If you just want to get to Edmonton really slow, go 110. Thank you for letting me know. I'd rather get there in 35 minutes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Don't do that. <clears throat> but where there is no law, there is no sin. Can you see that? So God's not like, here, devil, take care of the, just, just do whatever you want to my creation. No, he put the law in place so that you and I would realize, man, we need help. I cannot do this. Because whether, again, there's no law, there's no sin, and no recognition of sin, no need of a savior. The law reveals our ungodliness. The law reveals that we are in a desperate need of someone to rescue us from the requirements that are against us. The law is not there for you to just fulfill all, the, all those Old Testament guys. They couldn't keep any one of them. Even Moses, who wrote them all. There's 613. Even the Big Ten are hard to do. Yeah. Honor your father and mother. Some of you may have failed that just by walking in here this morning. <laughs> There's impossible for you to do it. So what do you need? You need Jesus. And not today. Grace actually puts the standard to a higher level. You can't even look at a woman or a man and lust after them. How am I supposed to do this? Okay, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust. Oh, shoot, I lusted. What do you do? You need Jesus. You need your mind renewed to what he did. So rather than me walking around, just basically don't lust, 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 don't lust. Ah! And you failed. What do you need? You need a renewing of your mind to what Jesus has done on your behalf. How is seeing Jesus going to take care of all that? Because when you see him, all that other stuff you don't actually really care for. I don't want that. I I have eyes for one woman. Guess who that is? Now you have to decide, is that my mom or my wife? That's what we... I love you, mama, but I'm going to go right over here just to... (laughs) How do I move forward on that? Yeah. um, (laughs) Satan loves to use the law to condemn us with it. It keeps us in guilt and it keeps us in condemnation. Jesus came and he abolished, not just put away once in a while. He absolutely abolished the written note that was against us. Jesus came to fulfill all the requirements that you and I were supposed to fulfill. God knew you couldn't do it. That's why Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. Now, (laughs) I am righteous because Jesus took my punishment for my sin and gave me his righteousness. I am, say this with me, I am in right standing with God because of Jesus Christ. Period. You can't add to that sentence. You don't put a comma there. It's a period. That's who I am because I believe in Jesus. I believe in his finished work. He made me righteous, period. It's not based on my behavior, good or bad. That's who I am. And the moment you wake up to who you are in Christ Jesus, all that sin, all that stuff starts to fall off you. Grace is not an enablement for sin. Grace's goal is still holiness, and grace will teach you how to live that way, but it's not going to be based off the law. It's going to be done out of a personal relationship with him. 
That's why the, the, the sin will no longer conquer me because the grace of God already has. Now, so what do I do? I'm finishing right here. What do I do? I dive into my covenant with God and rest in Christ and his finished work. This is my role. This is what I spend my time doing as I go into this New Testament. This is the covenant that Jesus solidified in his blood to make it true in heaven, to make it established on this earth. I look in this covenant, I go, in him, this is who I am. In him, this is what he has provided. In him, he has done this on my behalf. The Bible says, I am complete in him. I don't look at my beautiful wife and say, you complete me. She definitely does a great value to me, but if I'm looking to her to complete me, I'm gonna have a frustrated marriage. My completion is found in Jesus. He has taken care of me, spirit, soul, and body, right? Sometimes we get so dependent on other people, and that's a lot of time. That's where people get disappointed in life. I love my wife. We have a wonderful relationship, but she is not my God. I'm not hers. I'm not her Lord. (laughs) She has a Lord, and she gets her fulfillment from him. And what do I do? I just enjoy the benefits of being married with her. We have a wonderful relationship, and I'm so grateful for that. Now... Stop arming the devil by going back under the law. Don't allow the feelings to move you out of your new identity. There's not enough stupid and crazy that you could ever do that will outdo grace upon grace. We have to start proclaiming this gospel boldly, yes, to the world this way, but also to the church, to the world so that they hear there's a savior who loves them, loves them, loves them, loves them, loves them, loves them. Like what Julia mentioned before, he leaves the 99, he goes after the one. He is crazy hungry for this generation. I don't know about you, I saw that Jesus Revolution movie. I loved it. I wasn't born in the 60s or the 70s. It just, but what I saw was a God who cared about crazy weird people. Some of you were some of that, weren't you? Any hippies in the room? Oh, yeah, come on. Come on now. I see a few hippies. And I go, oh, it makes sense now. Okay, yeah. But what we see is that heaven is open to this world. It's desiring a relationship. And in that relationship, people get cleaned up. People get changed. Don't be so stuck in religious thinking going, well, they got to act like this. They got to look like this in order to get a touch from heaven. Are you kidding? Where sin abounds, what does grace do? much more abound. There's crazy and stupid all over this planet, but it will never compare to grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. People that are confused in that whole, that whole you know, transgender and the whole sex thing that's going out there. It is horrible what's taking place. It's stupid what's taking place. But what's the answer for that? Grace upon grace upon grace because it's the kindness of God that turns people from that confused place to go, wow, you are truth. Okay, I, I, want, I want this. And who knows? Do you know what God is able to, you know, where they doctors try to do that sex change, God will put you right back to what you were used to, supposed to be. He's good at that. He's got a parts room, and he can fix anything that the world tries to screw. No, I'm serious. He does. Whatever the devil tries to screw and twist up and you know, casterize and neuter a whole generation, God is able to restore and bring back to who you are called to be. So what do we do? Our message from the church to the world is grace, grace, grace to you and what Jesus has done. My God is so much bigger than a political party that's being stupid. 
I pray for them. I lift them up. But Lord, I tell you, my God is so much bigger. So church, we don't get distracted by the actions of evil men. Instead, we turn our affections towards the Lord. To me, Mary's a hero. I, w- I want a heart that's just like hers. That she just, I catch a glimpse of the Lord. And I, who cares what anybody else thinks? I don't care how stupid they think. I spent $100,000 or that's how much I got this year. And I'm spending it all on Jesus. It's so worth it. He is worth every penny that the Lord has given me. He's worth every thought that I have. He's worth every breath that comes out of my lungs. He is worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. How can I see that? Because I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's a command you see even in the book of Psalms. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Romans 8.1 is the last verse in Aaron. I'm going to call you up here, sir. Romans 8.1. Now the case is closed. So close that case. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. So how many of you are joined in life union with Jesus? Paul, put your hand up in the air. Put your hand now just say this, the case is closed. Come on, just think of that nagging voice, the condemning, alienating from God voice that may be going in your head. Do you know what you did last night? Do you know what you did last week? Do you know what you did? This? Did you know what you did here? The case is closed. Come on, you got to say that with boldness. The case is closed. Why? Because I am joined to Jesus there is no such thing as an accusing voice. There is an accusing voice, but there is no accusing voice of condemnation because I'm in him. He doesn't accuse you. He doesn't look at you and go, you are off. You are wrong. You are bad. You are bad. You are bad. His love will show you how to live his way. Absolutely. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't mistake this and go, well, I guess I can just do whatever I want. No, no, no. That's not what this is. When you get in close contact with Jesus, he starts changing you to be more like him. And that's the goal. It's not to come up to some standard of, well, this is how churchy religious things are. No, the standard is his lifestyle and the grace of God empowers you to live that way. Amen. One more time. The case is closed. Accusing voice. You shut up. I'm in Jesus Christ. He's my right standing. And that's how you do it. Every time that voice comes back that tries to alienate you, push you away. I can't go to church. I messed up. This is the exact place you need to be. Is in a place that loves you, in a place that the presence of Jesus is there. It's so crazy that the very thing that God wants you to do when you mess up is run to Him, not away from Him. He knows what you've been doing. He knows it all. He knows the thoughts. So what do I do? Instead of running away from God, he's the helper. He's here to show you, restore you, and bring you back into proper order. But religion tries to alienate and push away and you know, push you to the side, get you further away from God. Stop it. Come back in. Come back to God. Get back into the relationship. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Close that case. That file is closed. Don't even put it in a filing cabinet. Burn it. Amen.